If you have your Bibles this morning, and I trust that you do, if you can open with me to the Gospel of John chapter 8, the Gospel of John chapter 8, we're going to cover verses 31 through 59 together today, so we've got a lot to cover. So welcome to week 24 of our series that has us walking through the Gospel of John, and during our journey <clears throat> so far, Jesus has been declared as the eternal word of God. He has turned water into wine. He has healed an official's son from a distance. <clears throat> he has, excuse me, <clears throat> he has healed a crippled man who was crippled for 38 years. Several times he has claimed himself to be God. He has fed 5,000 men plus women and children with five loaves and three, uh, two, fi two fish, excuse me. He has walked on water. He has claimed to be the source of living water. He has claimed to be the bread of life, and he has claimed to be the light and the only light of the world, as we saw last week. And this morning, we come to probably the claim of all claims, that Jesus is Yahweh, that he is the self-existent God who sets us free. He sets us free. In the movie Braveheart, Mel Gibson plays William Wallace. I don't know if you know this, Braveheart is one of Brother Steve's most favorite movies. Every time it comes on, he watches it, and he, of course, paints his face blue. And he doesn't own a kilt, so he always puts a dress on. It's kind of weird, but that's how he does it. And he keeps asking me for us to, to show it during our community movie night, and I just don't have the heart. So we're not going there yet. But So in the movie Braveheart, if you've seen it, William Wallace basically is rebelling against the rule of England, something, of course, that we as Americans can relate to. Uh, the enemy of William Wallace in the movie, of course, is Edward I, also known as Longshanks because of his stature. And Edward I was a cruel, horrible man who wanted nothing more than to capture William Wallace. And as the movie progresses, the hatred from Edward I and William Wallace just continues to, to progress all throughout the movie. And at one point in the film, William Wallace, gathering all of his troops together for one of the battles in the film, addresses his men, and he says something like this, fight and you may die, run and you will live for a while, but let's tell our enemies that they can take our lives, but they will never take our, so few, some of you have seen the movie, never take our freedom and at any rate the movie goes on William Wallace is betrayed by a friend he's captured he is brought before a mock court in England he is eventually brought before his executioner and the executioner tells him hey if you beg for mercy I'll make it quick above the court in his room is Edward the first who is on his deathbed the window is open and Edward the first is just waiting to hear William Wallace beg for mercy but instead of begging for mercy. Instead of begging for mercy, William Wallace mustered up just enough strength to shout his final word. And his final word was freedom. Freedom. Think about this. No word evokes a more positive emotion in typical people than the word freedom. It is a powerful word, but it is a more powerful reality. Let me say it again. Freedom is a powerful word, but it's a more powerful reality. It has so much power within it. And nations have gone to war for freedom. Nations, most nations have entire holidays set aside to celebrate the freedom that, that they have. And we know that our nation, 
was built upon freedom July 4th, 1776. You know it very well. 56 men signed the Declaration of Independence. And of course, among other things, we know that we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal and are endowed by their creator with unalienable rights. And among these are, say them with me, life, liberty, and so life, liberty, freedom, and the pursuit of happiness. Freedom is built into the fabric of our nation. But here's the tragedy, and it's a sad one. Are we really free? Well, you see, we live in a country filled with people who enjoy political freedom, people who enjoy every form and many forms of social freedom, while at the same time, many of those people are enslaved spiritually. They're spiritually enslaved. There's a level of freedom that is more needed than political freedom. There's a level of freedom that's better than social freedom or any other freedom that man can have, and that is spiritual freedom. There is nothing like the freedom that we have in Jesus Christ. And let me say it this morning, church, no money can buy it, no status can obtain it, no work can ever earn it, and nothing can match the freedom that we have in Jesus. Amen. Do you know this freedom? I pray that you do. So let's dive in this morning and let's aim for the freedom that is ours or can be ours in Christ. And if you're able, I'm going to ask you to stand as we honor God's word. The verses will also be on the screen. We're going to begin in verse 31. It says this, So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Let me just pause there and say, praise God. Amen. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my words find no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. They said to him, we were not born of sexual morality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks of his own character. Other versions say his own native tongue, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? 
Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died? And the prophets died. Who do you make yourself out to be? I'm glad they asked this question. Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said, you are not yet 50 years old and have you seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Let's pray. Father, today we come to your word and we proclaim again, Lord, your word is living. It's powerful. It's holy. Lord, just speak to our hearts and lives today by your word, through your spirit. Open our eyes that may we see wonderful things from your word. Have your way. In Jesus' name, amen. And you may be seated. I want you to think about freedom and what we just read. And then I want you to think about this. As soon as the Nazis took power, they developed concentration camps. In 1936, the Sachsenhausen concentration camp was opened near Berlin as a labor camp, not in essence, not necessarily as an extermination camp in their view, yet within nine, a nine-year period, about 40,000 of the 200,000 prisoners died in Sachsenhausen. Initially, most of those in prison were political opponents, but thousands of gypsies, Jews, and others were eventually sent there. On the gates of this prison was a sign that read, Work makes you free. Work makes you free. Of course, this was more than a work camp. Mass murder was perpetrated in gas chambers through hangings and firing squads. In the infirmary, hear this, there were fatal medicines tested on inmates which poisoned them. For example, Jewish children had straw sewn into their skin to observe the effects that gangrene had on German troops who were, who were basically experiencing life in the trenches. Outside, prisoners of war were forced to march for 30 hours, or excuse me, 30 miles a day at gunpoint over different surfaces to test the longevity of German boots. Although the Nazis told their prisoners, work will set you free, in truth, millions of forced laborers were worked to death. Were worked to death. And think about this. Why did the Nazis choose that phrase, work makes you free, to put on the gates of that prison? And I think every other prison in Germany had those words on them. Why those words? And what we learn is that this was the Nazis' flagrant attempt to rewrite and change the words of Jesus in John 8. And here is the sad and damning reality for us this morning. 
not only were prisoners deceived by the false hope of the concentration camps all over Germany in which they were led to believe that if they worked hard, they would be given freedom. Not only that, but people are still being deceived by those words all over our world. Work hard and you'll be free. Brothers and sisters, it was a lie then and it's a lie now. It is a lie. And think about this. Again, this conversation is taking place at the end of what's called the Feast of Booths, where the Israelites are celebrating God's freedom from Egypt. And in this moment, a better freedom than life outside of Egypt is being offered. It's a freedom inside of Jesus. And that freedom is being offered to these in this moment. So what I want to do this morning, I want to unpack three truths together today. And I wish we had more time because there would be way more truths. But here's the three that we have this morning. First of all, there is a truth that frees us. There is truth that frees us. Listen to what Jesus says in verse 31. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. Now, John loves that word abide. In fact, the whole New Testament, throughout the whole New Testament, the word abide appears 34 times. Well, the word abide comes from John's pen 31 of those 34 times, meaning that John only left three other abides for the other writers. He wanted them all for himself. And here we are told that a true disciple is one who abides in the words of Christ. That word abide means to make your home in, to endure in, to continue in. So John is saying, Jesus is saying here, if my disciples make their home in my words, continue in my words. But what does that mean? It's difficult to abide in information. It's hard to have a personal relationship with words. But you can have a personal relationship with a person. And let me just say this, the greatest evidence that we are children of God is not a one-time public profession. The greatest evidence that we are children of God is an enduring obedience to Jesus Christ. That is the greatest evidence of our faith, an enduring obedience to Jesus Christ. And what Jesus is saying is this, genuine freedom comes from submission to my word. Just follow with me here. Picture a train going along a railroad track. The track is made to carry the many tons of steel that make up the train. But what if a train just decided that it wanted to be free from the tracks? And the train just said, this track is too confining for me. Um, I want to be free from the narrowness and from the constraints of this track. If this train could somehow jump these tracks what would happen? It would immediately crash and probably burn. Jump the track, wreck the train. And so it is with our lives. So it is with our lives. When we violate the instruction in God's word, and when we command to do whatever we want, however we want, wherever we want, whenever we want, it won't be long before we crash and burn. Just, just like the train, we jump the track, we wreck our lives. Therefore, we're abiding in his word. Then look at verse 32. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. The truth will set you free. Now, that is a foreign concept to our postmodern society. In our day and age, the, a search for absolute truth has been abandoned. 
In our postmodern society, they are absolutely certain that there is nothing absolutely certain. I mean, it's, it's insane the matter of ignorance that has taken place, that has flooded in. My, my father used to always say from this pulpit, he used to always say, um, one day our world will be so open-minded its brains will fall out. And is that not what we see today? I mean, it's so open-minded, there's no brains whatsoever. Yet, according to Jesus, this truth has the power to set a person free. This truth has a power to change someone from a slave into a son. And immediately, these religious leaders that are hearing Jesus deny that they had ever been slaves. Think about this. Not only were they ignoring their need for freedom, they're also rewriting their own history in this moment. They're saying there's never been a time where we've been slaves. Now, was that true? No, that wasn't true. In fact, Israel had been in bondage for most of their entire history. They were slaves in Egypt. They were slaves to Assyria. They were slaves in Babylon. They were slaves to the Medes and the Persians. And at the time of Jesus saying these words, they were slaves to the Romans. So they're, they're denying the reality of their own lives. Yet think about this. Yet here, Jesus isn't speaking about slavery to Rome. He's speaking about slavery to sin. In our, in our own or on our own, apart from Christ, we are more enslaved than we know. Deceived by sin. We won't deeply desire freedom until we recognize how enslaved we are. We won't desire freedom until we realize how enslaved we are to sin. One of the best illustrations of the power of sin that I found throughout this week came, came from Paul Harvey. You know Paul Harvey, the rest of the story, Paul Harvey. Well, he had a great illustration about an Eskimo killing a wolf. And here's his words. First, the Eskimo coats his knife, his knife blade with animal blood and allows it to freeze. Then he adds another layer of blood and then another and another until the blade is completely concealed by the frozen blood. Next, the hunter fixes his knife in the ground with the blade up. When a wolf follows his sensitive nose to the source of the scent and he discovers the bait, he licks it, tasting the blood. He begins to lick faster, more and more vigorously, lapping the blade until the keen edge is bare. Feverishly now, harder and harder, the wolf licks the blade in the Arctic night. So great becomes his craving for blood that the wolf doesn't notice the razor-sharp sting of the naked blade on his own tongue and that his thirst in this moment is being satisfied by his own warm blood. His carnivorous appetite just craves more and more until the dawn finds him dead in the snow. And brothers and sisters, sin is just like that. It tastes good. It's pleasurable for a season. There's an allure to it, but its grip soon becomes tighter and tighter and tighter until it completely destroys us. The worst way to live is under the grip of sin. It's the worst way for us to live. And then Jesus says this in verse 35, The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains Forever, And I want you to think here and do your own study, but go back and look and study the life of Ishmael, Abraham's son, by a slave woman, and Isaac, Isaac or Abraham's son of promise, by Sarah. 
One left, one remained. This is what Jesus is alluding to, but also this. Satan treats his own as slaves. Jesus treats his own as sons. It's the complete difference of how we are treated. And then look at verse 36. So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. You'll be free indeed. And let me just um, hit a little hard this morning. Jesus didn't come to this earth and die for your negativity. He didn't come to this earth and die for your feelings. He didn't come to this earth and die for your low self-esteem. He didn't come to this earth and die for your poverty or your hurts or your pains. Is, Is he concerned about those things? Absolutely. He cares. But that's not why he came. He came to lay down his life, to shed his blood for our sin. For our sin. Listen, we all love the idea of being free to live the way we want to live, but Christ offers a much greater freedom. He offers a much greater freedom. It's a spiritual freedom from the power of Satan and from the condemnation of sin. And Jesus says the only way for us to be set free is to know the truth, to become his disciples by abiding in his word. Do we know this freedom? Do we know it? There is truth that frees us. But then secondly, secondly, there is an enemy that lies to us. There's an enemy that lies to us. So the conversation eventually led to Abraham, the father of their faith. And just look with me at verse 39 real quick. Verse 39, it says this. It says, they answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works that Abraham did. Well, what works did Abraham do? First of all, he believed God. He believed God. In Genesis 15 and 17, he believed God. But also in Genesis 18, Abraham, hear this, welcomed a heavenly messenger. Welcomed him. And Jesus is saying, you don't believe God, nor are you welcoming me. And if you were Abraham's, you would do just that. Here's the deal. They assumed Like many people assume today that salvation comes through a physical birth and not a spiritual rebirth. There's a very common thought process that takes place today, and it goes like this. Are you a Christian? Yes, I'm a Christian. Well, how do you know you're a Christian? Well, that's how I was raised. It's how I was raised, so therefore I'm a Christian. Listen, it's easy to think you're a Christian because your parents or or grandparents are Christians, but that's not what saves you. How many of you have ever heard of the name Aaron Burr? Aaron Burr. So Aaron Burr was the guy who shot Alexander Hamilton in a duel. He was charged with treason. But did you also know that Aaron Burr's grandfather was a man by the name of Jonathan Edwards? Jonathan Edwards was probably one of the greatest, not only intellects, but spiritual forces in America. He preached during the Great Awakening, and one of his sermons, Sinners in in the Hands of an Angry God, is still studied to this day. And yet, his grandson was Aaron Burr. It doesn't matter who your parents, grandparents, or great-grandparents are. The question is, who are you? Who are you? Again, as we said a few weeks ago, God doesn't have any grandchildren. God only has children. God only has children. Every generation has to make and have their own relationship with Jesus Christ. 
According to Jesus here, there, there are really two fathers, either God or Satan. There are two families, the children of God or the children of the devil. There are two desires, either holiness or sin. There are two languages, truth or lies. There are two lifestyles, freedom or slavery. And there are two destinations and destinies here, life or death. And listen to what Jesus says in verse 44. He says, you are of your father the devil. You're of your father, the devil. So they had just told Jesus, we're not of sexual morality like you are. So they were trying to claim, hey, we've heard about your mom. She wasn't married to your dad when, when you were born. We've heard about that, that's sexual morality. We know about that. And Jesus says, you want to talk about fathers? We'll talk about fathers. I know your father. His name is the devil. That's who your father is. And these words indicate that Jesus was working off the premise, hear this, that Satan exists. Satan exists. That, Jesus was working off that premise. And then Jesus said this, and your will is to do your father's desires. Listen, by our sinful nature, apart from Christ, we are Satan's willing slaves in the kingdom of darkness. By our own nature, apart from Christ, we love darkness rather than we love light. And we want to do the desires of Satan. That's what sin is. Sin isn't just making a few bad choices. Sin is having a desire in our hearts to please the enemy of God. That's what sin is. And listen to how Jesus describes him. First of all, he was a murderer from the beginning. You know, we're not very far into the Bible before we find that out, right? That he's a murderer. You know, he shows up in the garden, and the first thing he does, of course, is he lies. More on that in a second. But the second thing he does is kill. Now, when Jesus says murder here, most people say, well, no, that's, that's referring to Cain and Abel. No, that's referring to what Satan did through um, taking part in the fall of mankind leading to all of our deaths. And so in one sense, Satan is a murderer leading to all of our deaths because of sin. We are born in sin, born spiritually dead. And then Satan, or excuse me, Jesus says this about Satan. And he does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. He's the father of all lies. In, in his book, The Fight, John White writes these words. He says, you may not have realized you had a relationship with the devil at all unless you were fooling around with the occult. Yet, aware of it or not, his spirit was at work in your body unknown to you. He thought of himself as your master. But like credit rating agencies, he makes himself unobtrusive as possible. His greatest skill lay in giving you a feeling that you are your own master. That is his lie, that you are in control. That's the lie of the enemy, that we are in control. Hear this today, brothers and sisters. Satan's power is in the lie. His power is in the lie. He has no power over you except that you believe his lies, that you believe the things he says. You break his power when you begin to expose his lies and when you begin to run to truth. When you and I begin to run to truth, we break his power. So dealing with Satan is not ultimately about our power. It's about truth. But here's the, the amazing thing. The truth sets us free. And then the, if the Son sets us free, we're free indeed. And we can say, as John later did, he who is in me 
is greater than he who is in the world. The truth sets us free. So there is truth that frees us. There's an enemy that lies to us. And then lastly, number three, there is a name that comforts us. There is a name that comforts us. And I want you to think about what's happening here. So Jesus is kind of sparring with these religious leaders. They begin to say, well, you're a Samaritan, and don't you have a demon? And Jesus says, no, I don't have a demon. I'm from God. And Jesus says, listen, if, if you believed in me, if you listened to my word, you wouldn't die. And they said, well, now we know that you're a demon because Abraham died. Who do you think you are? Are you greater than Abraham? I love that because that's the same, almost the same question that the woman at the well asked Jesus. Are you greater than Jacob? And they're saying here, are you greater than Abraham? Who do you think you are? Who are you making yourself out to be? And Jesus says, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. And he saw it. Now, there's no scripture that tells us that Abraham um, saw Jesus as far as in the New Testament picture of that. But what we know is Hebrews 11 says, Abraham saw it all by faith. By faith, he saw it all. And then Jesus eventually says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Now, he didn't say this, before Abraham was, I was. He's not saying I'm over 2,000 years old. What he's saying is, I was before that, way before that, in the beginning as God. Just think about this picture of what's being said. And, of course, we know that they understood him correctly because they picked up stones wanting to kill him. But think about your response to this name. In C.S. Lewis's The Chronicles of Narnia, I quote this so many times, but he describes the response as the children in the story, Peter, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy, all first hear about Aslan for the first time. This great lion, Christ figure in the stories. And when they first hear of Aslan from Mr. Beaver, this is how Lewis describes the response of their hearts. He says this, None of the children knew who Aslan was any more than you do. But the moment the beaver had spoken these words, everyone felt quite different. At the name of Aslan, each one of the children felt something jump in its inside. Edmund felt a sensation of mysterious horror. Peter felt suddenly brave and adventurous. Susan felt as if some delicious smell or some delightful strain of music had just floated by her. And Lucy got the feeling you have when you wake up in the morning and realize that it is the beginning of the holidays or the beginning of summer. What is your response to this amazing declaration before Abraham was, I am? Listen, in referring to himself as I am, Jesus is not suffering here from bad grammar skills. That's not what's happening here. He is taking upon himself the divine name of God, Yahweh. And he is saying to all those who are looking at him in the temple, he is saying, I'm God. I am God. I am the one who appeared to Moses in the wilderness. I read this devotional again this week, and it said this, I have long wondered why God would call himself by such a name. But slowly I am learning its significance. A sentence needs only two things to be, a, to be complete. It needs a subject and a verb. So when God says that he is I am, it conveys the concept that he is complete in himself. Hear this. He is the subject and he is the, the verb. And he is everything that we could possibly ever need. 
we have in him. So Jesus is making the connection for us here. There is no equivalent to him but him. If you place Jesus in an equation followed by an equal sign, you can't put anything else on the other side except for Jesus. He, you, you can't do it. Nothing there but God himself. I am means I, I am who I am. Not I am who you think I am. Not I am who you want me to be. But I am who I am. Or another way of saying this, don't miss it because there's comfort in this. Jesus is saying, I am whoever you need me to be. I am whoever you need me to be. I am. I am whoever you need me to be in every moment of your life. I am. And in this moment, God in Christ is not just declaring his existence, but a particular kind of existence. Meaning the name Yahweh does not just speak of existence, it speaks of self-existence. Meaning, and I've said this many times before, that God does not depend on us for his existence. We depend on God for our existence. To put it a different way, if you and I all collectively were to shake our fist at God and say, God, we hope you die, God would keep living. But if God looked at us and said, drop dead, we'd all be dead. Doornail dead. We depend on him for our existence. But his existence, his character is determined by him. And praise God, it can't change. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Or we put it this way before. The difference between his being and ours is more than the difference between the sun and a single candle. It's more than the difference between the ocean and a raindrop. It's more than the difference between the universe and the room that we are sitting in in this moment all creation can pass away in a moment but god necessarily exists forever we are changing he is not he is the unchanging one he is eternal and for him to say i am means i am ever existing eternity past eternity future there was a time where we began but not with him he's always been and there is so much summed up in that those words i am that should bring us to our knees in worship oh the comfort oh the encouragement that comes as we hear our god say i am let me say it this way and i've said this before to any who feel like you're in darkness jesus said i am the light to any who feel hunger pains from an unsatisfied life, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. I am the one who completely satisfies. To any who feel completely disconnected, Jesus says, I'm the vine. I am the vine. To all who feel lost, deceived, or lifeless, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. To any who feel uncared for, Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. And we can say together, the Lord is my shepherd, therefore I shall not want. I shall not want ever. To those who are crushed by the consequences of sin, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he dies, yet he shall live. Listen, you might in this moment, I might in this moment feel so sinful, yet God is so abundantly gracious. You might feel weak in this moment, but God is forever strong. And whatever you're not getting from others, let me say this, he is. He is. And because he is, please hear this this morning, because God is, we don't have to be. Oh, the comfort, 
Oh, the encouragement and the pressure that takes off of us. He's God, therefore, you don't have to be. You don't have to be in control because he is in control. And there is freedom in that. There's comfort in that. Do you know it? Do you know it? Let me end today with the words of Martin Luther. The great reformationist himself. He said this. Either sin is with you, lying on your shoulders, or it is lying on Christ, the Lamb of God. Now, if it is lying on your back, you are lost. But if it is resting on Christ, you are free and you will be saved. Now choose what you want. Choose what you want. Do we choose freedom in Christ, or do we choose slavery apart from him? Oh, today that we have chosen freedom, and oh, today that we would once again abide in him, abide in his words. I'm going to ask you to stand together this morning. We're going to call Brother Frank and the musicians forward as we enter this time of invitation and consecration, and let us pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. Jesus, we thank you for the freedom that is in you, the freedom that you give, Jesus, that if we know the truth, and the truth is a person, and that person is named Jesus, we can be free. If the Son sets us free, we're free indeed. May we know that freedom. May we walk in that freedom. May we live in that freedom. May we abide in you. May we not believe the lies of the enemy, and allow him to continue to have power over us. But may we expose those lies by the truth, knowing that greater is he that's in us than he that is in the world. That if we resist the devil, he will flee from us, as your word says. Not because of our power, but Jesus, because of yours. Thank you for what we have in you, both now and forever. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.